You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Regardless of your specialty, the practice of medicine revolves around relationships. What has love got to do with being a physician? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Kai McDonald. Kai practices in beautiful San Diego, where he is assistant clinical professor of both family medicine and psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego. His practice includes acting as a teaching physician on the consult liaison, emergency room, and inpatient psychiatric units, part-time private practice, and he acts as medical director of clinical trials. Dr. McDonald is board certified in both family medicine and psychiatry. Welcome. Thanks. So, Kai, tell us about relationships. First, Leslie, you have to take a step back and say I'm going to talk about the brain part of relationships because, as, as I think everyone out there listening knows, relationships are a confusing morass that's uh, be- bewitched the best of us. But in terms of the scientific understanding of relationships, there's a whole science behind this, which some people have called uh, interpersonal neurobiology, which looks at the way that human relationships impact the brain and brain development. So how does this affect your average practitioner out there? Is this something we even need to spend our brain power on? Great question. It's an implicit piece of medicine that when you walk into a room or interact with a patient, there's a lot of very dynamic relational events going on. And even if they're just there for a sore throat and you're just giving them a prescription, if you image, that's why neuroimaging, which is the study of brain processes, if you image what happens, it's profound and complex. And so I believe it actually impacts even a five-minute encounter in terms of uh, patient satisfaction, in terms of healing potential. And again, I think the literature bears out that there's a pragmatic component in terms of lawsuits, that the way you interact and talk to patients has bearing there. So give us some tips. How can we do better at this? The first thing is really, I think, involves something called mindfulness, which is to, as hard as this is, because, you know, any of us who have been running around know, uh, but is to slow down and uh, just think for a minute about the humanity of the person you're seeing and that everyone's had a relationship, everyone's brain is organized around relationships, that a lot of people come to us with distressing emotions or questions or uh, feelings. And that just making a a connection using the biology of emotions, which is your eyes and your face, and of course your body posture, can really have a dramatic effect, I think. And so I think the eye contact, looking at faces, and doing some mindfulness yourself in terms of, you know, where you're at inside, take a deep breath, and, you know, keep in mind that the person you're seeing next to me is a human being who you know, has some needs. and Because certainly it can make a difference, right? Just looking somebody in the eye. For example, I, I met a very famous politician about a month or so ago in a very busy room. Everybody's clamoring for his attention. And he stopped and looked at me probably for maybe three seconds. But it was very powerful. I felt as if he really was paying attention to me, even though there were hundreds of people behind me. So just a few seconds, I think, really can be powerful. Yeah, and, and what's fascinating, Leslie, is, again, if you look at the neuroimaging literature, the brain scanning literature, the brain processes that happen when you look at people's eyes are tremendous and engage the emotional circuitry that we talk about. And so, yeah, the, it's, it's not about time spent. It's, it's time spent over impact. And so I think you're speaking to something. Eyes are the window to the soul. I, I don't know about the soul, but I know eyes are the window to the emotional part of the brain. 
And if you think about the fact that how do mothers and fathers and children bond, they bond by looking at each other. That impacts uh, the brain in a very profound way. And so your story, I think, would have a, a correlate in terms of neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And, and how does this interact with uh, the attachment theory? You, you mentioned babies. It seems like the, the attachment theory really is the core of what we're talking about. Yeah, the, this is a, a line of understanding that's really been very humanizing about medicine, which is to look at the fact that all mammals need an attachment bond to survive and that that is actually more critical and important than food and water. You think about it, uh, there's a scientist named Hoffer who studied how animals and, and baby humans, how their actual physiologic nervous system is regulated by the attention of early caregivers and uh, showed that there are one-to-one correlations between, for example, touch or certain kinds of touch and physiologic parameters. So attachment theory really says that our brains are social and that that is a very, very physical, real thing. And back to love, my original uh, question was, what has love got to do with being a physician? Um, Are there different, uh, let's call them flavors of love? That's the analogy I use when I discuss this topic. The core circuit that we're talking about in the brain really is something I call care, which is relatively non-sexualized, well-being giving. It has to do with touch and stroke, non-sexualized. Of course, there are branches of love that include sexualized love, that include play, that include romantic love. All of those, I think, I consider branches off the tree. But for example, I was talking about the zoo earlier. If you go to the zoo and watch chimps or other primates touch each other and then go to the uh, intensive care unit or the uh, neonatal intensive care unit, uh, there's really profound similarity in the behaviors that we use. I, I tell us, my wife told me I could tell this story. Sometimes if you look at what people do when they sleep, you can tell a lot. And she, she told me about a time when we were sleeping and I reached over and kind of stroked her face a little bit. And I was not conscious at all. To me, that's evidence of, the, of a care circuit, that, you know, there's a caring circuit. And I hope that this gets activated, you know, as we practice medicine as much as possible. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is family practitioner and psychiatrist, Dr. Kai McDonald. We are discussing the neuroscience of relationships. So again, Dr. McDonald, how about love and medicine? Um, Any other things that we should pay attention to in our daily practice? I think of another overlap that's pretty profound when you muse on it. It's uh, based on a, a series of studies by a guy named Eisenberger. This is a guy who put people in a scanner and had them play a ball game. He had them, I throw the ball to you, I throw the ball to Jim, I throw the ball to you, I throw the ball to Jim, and then I stop throwing the ball to you and I scan your brain. And what's interesting is that the brain part of being excluded or a relationship a break is similar to the part of the brain that lights up with emotional pain and is also similar to the part of the brain that if you take guinea pigs and separate them from their mamas lights up. And so there's a, it, at the brain level, emotional pain and physical pain look very similar. And this, I think this helps us understand the profound impact that relationships and relationship loss can have and stop marginalizing how impactful that is. So to me, that's a real life example of, you know, losing a spouse, losing a child and losing a limb, 
have very have some over a lot of overlap in the brain really so how does understanding the biology of this emotional impact help us better treat patients that are in pain either physical pain or emotional pain great question i think that the major paradigm shift is not to marginalize emotions as something that is unimportant and then the the physical stuff is important that if you take brain activity as reality, that I, I think it just helps you give more um, importance to it. And that, uh, that would be the, the simplest take-home is that emotions are brain events that have and painful emotions have a lot of overlap with physical pain. So I, I think that's the, one of the major take-homes. So certainly it has its uh, reach into psychopharmacology, but how might, you know, you're in a unique position being a psychiatrist and a family medicine doc. Um, you know, in psychiatry, I hope we're, we're pretty good about dealing with things like empathy and relationships. How can we help maybe non-psychiatrists use these skills? Great question. Uh, non-psychiatrists have the same eyes and the same brains that we do. And so I think, again, uh, elevating the importance of an emotional connection uh, with patients, even for a brief period, as you were talking before about eye contact, elevating the importance of that. We a lot of times feel like the important thing in an interaction is making the, the right drug choice or a good medical decision, and that can be true. I think of studies indicating that experiencing pain alone is much more distressing than experiencing pain with someone and so just that making that connection at a very brief level, I think, can impact the activity in, uh, in pain and other things. Like we all know, uh, a lot of these conditions are ongoing conditions, and knowing that you're not alone in it can certainly, and again, I talked about from an HMO perspective, that can be communicated in, in a minute, I'd hope. It seems, too, that this is the logical place then for patient support groups, aftercare sorts of situations, um, you know, where patients can help each other as well. I think that's very well said. And again, if you understand that relationships activate important biology in the brain, you, I, sh I share with patients, I'm treating for bipolar disorder, for example, I ask about their relationships because their relationships impact their brain. And even if I'm just doing you know, medication management, I want to know what's impacting their brain. And so certainly we can encourage patients to take seriously the impact of relational events on their function, their pain, their mood, et cetera. Now, I wonder, um, have any studies been done looking at really what defines a relationship? Does it have to be face-to-face? -face? Um, could it be, say, an Internet chat room? Will that uh, give people the same sort of emotional connection and support that a face-to-face -face relationship would? Good question. I don't know of any studies looking at that, and humans are terrifically adaptive. The neuro, what the neuroimaging tells me, though, is eye contact, touch, and actually seeing and being with another human being, including pheromones, those funky chemicals that float between people and you can smell. I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen in a more intimate setting that I don't think happen over the Internet. That said, you know, humans have a tremendous ability to extrapolate, and so I think there are a lot of powerful things that happen over the Internet. And Internet studies of certain basic forms of therapy, you know, have, have shown uh, uh, effectiveness. So, you know, I think that the, the short answer is the Internet does something. The long answer is probably not as much and not as, in, as, not as nuanced a way. Kai, there was just a study published, certainly in the psych literature, 
about phone therapy, where patients with major depression uh, were receiving medicines, and half of them got cognitive therapy over eight sessions via the telephone, never meeting their therapist. And as you might predict, the patients that had the phone therapy plus the medicines did much better acutely than the medicines alone. But what was interesting to me that even significantly after the treatment was over, that the patients with phone therapy continued to do better than the patients with medicines alone. That, I think, ties into exactly what we're saying, that this feeling of connectedness, the feeling that there's another human mind out there that's concerned about you and working with you, you don't need to be in a room with somebody to create that experience. Well, I want to thank our guest, Dr. Kai McDonald. We have been discussing the issue of relationships in the practice of medicine. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and any questions to Dr. McDonald, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.